This is the fifth Sunday in Lent, and in this, on the fifth Sunday in all cycles, we switch gears. The first four Sundays are about uh, the Lenten observance, about the three predicates that I mentioned on Ash Wednesday, repentance, reconciliation, and godly motives. And while those things don't disappear on the fifth Sunday in Lent, they're subordinated to now a reflection through the biblical readings on the importance and the centrality of the cross of Christ, a subject that isn't uh, too widely spoken of in many circles in the Episcopal Church on a frequent basis, but nonetheless it is central. And so now we begin uh, talking about its importance and how we might understand this conundrum with regard to salvation coming from this event and how we understand that and appropriate it and make it part of our own personal history. So I'm going to preach on all three readings from Jeremiah, from the letter to the Hebrews, and from John's Gospel. And all of them in one form or another focus us on the importance of the cross, on Jesus' saving death and its meaning. The reading from Jeremiah is uh, fairly well along in the book of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31. Jeremiah is the largest book in the Old Testament. And Jeremiah is one of the major prophets. And as I've mentioned to you before, we have two kinds of prophets in the Old Testament. We have major prophets and we have minor prophets. Major prophets have a big book. Minor prophets have a little book. Does that mean that a minor prophet is less important than a major prophet? No, they just have a little book. And Jeremiah has a big book. It's the biggest book. <clears throat> so here's the situation on the ground. Jeremiah is prophesying to the Jews in exile in Babylon. And it is about to come to an end. And he is telling them that there are some things that are now going to occur. This is a passage, by the way, that for Jeremiah is pretty upbeat. You know, if you want the blue picture, read the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So he's speaking today about hope about new life, about transformation, and how it's going to make itself manifest in, with the people of the covenant, the Jews, is that God is now going to write with them a new covenant. And this is the only location in the Old Testament where we have it even implied that God's plan is for there to be a New Testament which Christian people believe are the Christian scriptures, which somehow now elucidate the nature of this new covenant. Jeremiah says this is not going to be a covenant that was written in stone like in Sinai. He said to them in this reading and has said before, the reason why you're in exile in Babylon is because of your unfaithfulness to the old covenant. So God, who was always faithful 
and always steadfast is now going to give you a new covenant that is not going to be written on stone, but is going to be written on your heart. And so the transformative power of God is not merely something given corporately to the people of God. It also now has the possibility to transform individuals' emotional, spiritual, and mental states such that they can begin to perceive and understand their vocation in the world in a deeper and fuller sense and they can understand how to live a life more congruent with God's purposes as they live in ordinary and in commonplace ways. So Jeremiah is saying, here's going now to come a new covenant. This is the beginning of the whole concept that Jesus will recapitulate in his earthly ministry and all those who followed them by understanding that this new covenant brings now to its fullness, to its maturity, the return from exile 500 years before nearly. Many people in the time of Jesus believed that although the Jews had returned to Jerusalem, that the exile itself had not come to fruition and that in the ministry and the words and works of Jesus, we now see this restoration come to its completeness. And, uh, and Jeremiah is prophesying this during the Babylonian captivity in about 589 B.C. Now, how do we appropriate that as Christian people? In the season of Lent, one of the great foci is the baptismal covenant. So when we want a place to look to check and see how are we doing living a life congruent with God's purposes or how may I begin this process or rekindle this process, one of the things you can do is go to the Book of Common Prayer and open to page 304, 305 and read the baptismal covenant to yourself. And you can learn something about what it means to be faithful and how to incorporate it in your life. So from Jeremiah, we get now the saving work of Christ coming with the new covenant, coming with the sacrifice of his blood, and by virtue of that, the release of the Holy Spirit of God into the hearts of all faithful people that allow us to understand God's presence in our internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental states, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And this reading sets us up for uh, a reading from the letter to the Hebrews. The older I have become, and a, a continuing student of the Bible, the epistle to the Hebrews becomes one of my favorites. And sometimes I think there's something wrong with me. Because when I first started to read it, I couldn't make head nor tail out of it. But as you know, it contains perhaps my favorite phrase in the whole of the New Testament. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The epistle to the Hebrews is perhaps the most tightly reasoned uh, explication in the New Testament of what we call in theology and in biblical scholarship Christology, which is the study of who Jesus is, 
who we understand him to be in terms of his humanity and of his divinity? What is the relationship between the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus? And by extension, how do we understand this in terms of seeing him as the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith? And so for me, one of the most important lines in the reading for today is, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having made, been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So you and I must ask the question, if we wish to appropriate this reading and make it part of our own personal history, what have you learned from your suffering? And what kind of obedience do you learn from your suffering? You know, I have to tell you, without getting into one of these, you know, I, 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 me, me, me things, opera singing, that uh, a lot of the suffering I've gone through is uh, self-inflicted. But sometimes I've been through some suffering that isn't self-inflicted. And what kind of obedience do you learn through bo in both of those particular situations. One of the ways to understand what wisdom means, what human wisdom means, what practical wisdom means, is to understand it as the accumulated learning and response to the adversity of your life. What have you learned about life? from this form of obedience. Would you wish to say, I need to be obedient and seek all of the suffering that I can get? There are some who believe that. You know, I told a few weeks ago, like my grandfather, oh yeah, Al Ludlow, he's been enjoying poor health for about 12 years. Right? That's not what we mean in this case. It means that somehow through the process of coming to terms with this, and understanding we mature in the spirit. And as it says in this reading, what Jesus went through made him perfect. So I need to explain this because you and I may say, well, we can't do that. The word perfect in this text means to come to maturity, to achieve the goal. It does not mean moral perfection. Many of us become sick or crazy trying to achieve moral perfection. The word perfect in the New Testament means mature, teleios. And I've said this many times, that for me, perfect is hard to get, mature is a little easier. And mature comes from the accumulated learning uh, with regard to the suffering and the adversity. You know, we don't mean here these gargantuan sufferings that many of us go through at least once or twice or whatever. We mean the quotidian suffering that we all have to go through on a daily basis, you know. I mean, depending on your mood, sometimes you agree with Jean-Paul Sartre, right? Hell is other people. 
So that's not what we mean. We mean learning how to learn from uh, being generous-hearted and taking other people seriously in the best possible way. And so we think, how have we learned and what have we learned and what do we learn from the obedience of the Savior who did this to fulfill his vocation? In the Gospel reading from John, we have what uh, some biblical scholar... I should say this to you first. When I first came to this diocese uh, in 1993, I went to the first diocesan convention uh, for this diocese, and it was in San Luis Obispo. And we were at the convention, and one of the things you do in the Episcopal Church at diocesan conventions is to pass the operating budget of the diocese for the coming year. So often there's a great debate and conversation about the operating budget. And Well, I got there. I was a green pea. I knew nothing about the internal workings of this diocese or, as my grandmother said, dear, there's tension. So there was a huge knock-down and drag-out debate on the diocesan budget that year such that we didn't pass a budget. And we deferred the passage of the operating budget for that year for a special convention in February of 1994. So the upshot of all this was the chair of the budget committee resigned in a huff. And Bishop Shimfke called me and said, uh, David, would you please be the chair of the budget committee for the diocese for this coming year? And oh, by the way, one of the things you have to do is you have to preside at this special convention on the debate on the present budget. So I said, well, okay, but you know, I'll go ahead. So we have the special convention, and it was all at All Saints Church in Carmel. And uh, it was in the church. So I had to get into the pulpit to handle all the debate and the votes and all this stuff. So I walk up the steps, and on the lectern in the pulpit was a brass plaque that said in the older translation, Sir, we would see Jesus. And I was nervous, and I looked at this thing, and I, I said, well, it's just me, you know. <laughs> I hope it works. So today, people ask to see Jesus. This was a question in this gospel about, we want to see Jesus in depth. So it's a story, they come to Jesus, the Greeks, they want to understand who he is and what is the meaning of his ministry and how does he in some way recapitulate the promises of Israel and all of the yearnings of the peoples of the ancient Near East, the synthesis of the Hellenistic worldview and of the Hebrew worldview. And so we begin that and then we have Jesus in the Johannine sense. This is called the Johannine Gethsemane where he sort of in a less anxious way uh, debates with himself about whether or not he's going to fulfill his vocation and uh, be crucified. And so he's talking about all of this. And what is given to us here is perhaps one of the most preferable theories of the atonement. 
and perhaps it can be best characterized by looking at the cross in the parish hall over the lectern. Christus Victor is what we hear about here. Paul talks about it much in a much better way in Colossians, thinking about this reading. And when you were dead in trespasses, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. In other words, the meaning of the cross is that Jesus defeats the powers of evil. They no longer have power. Human beings are slow to appropriate that and to understand that God is at work in the lives of all faithful people when he has written his covenant on their hearts to enable them to be the instruments of the abolition of evil in the world and to stand against it and to say no to it. And in today's gospel, we have this theory of the doctrine of the atonement. I've said this at the Lenten classes. 1935, Dean Alan Richardson, who was the Dean of York Minster in England, wrote a little book, and he had a chapter on the atonement, and he said, since the doctrine of the atonement is a theory, we are free to make up our own theory of the doctrine of the atonement. So think about that. What do you think Jesus did for you, and how do we understand why this symbol is at the center, this paradox? And maybe it's connected to suffering, and it's connected to our corporate suffering and to our personal suffering. And somehow that God's presence never wavers in the midst of that difficulty with you and will assist you in the process of coming to yourself and seeing how now you can achieve some species of healing, not cure, healing. And what does it mean? So this week, give thanks for God's steadfast faithfulness, for bringing to each of us a renewed covenant that we would understand as Episcopalians the baptismal covenant. Think about what you've learned from the adversity you've been through in your life, and do you have any practical wisdom to commend to people? I don't mean giving people advice about how to live their lives. I mean, what have you learned with what you've been through, and can it be helpful to anybody offered without prejudice. And finally, remember that Jesus Christ is there to assist you in the triumph over evil for the purposes it says elsewhere in the scriptures, so that we can live no longer for ourselves alone, but for him who died for us and rose again. Amen.